Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Gary, Indiana, fanciest city in the world for economics, the home of Joe Stiglitz and Paul Samuelson. Gary, Indiana went from a pandemic 19% unemployment down to 7% unemployment. That indicates the inequalities of a strange, strange economy. How great is the inequality in this 2021? Well, the... the the pandemic both exposed and exacerbated uh, the inequalities. Uh, we were slated for a very K-shaped recovery with those at the top uh, who had done well doing even better and those at the bottom uh, doing more poorly. The kind of numbers that you cited suggest that, that the kind of very strong economic uh, recovery act uh, that uh, was passed the $1.9 trillion is beginning to have some effect and mitigating at least uh, some of that fear of this uh, very K-shaped recovery. It's still there. It's still very clear that in terms of wealth, uh, those at the top have done very well and those at the bottom uh, are more in debt uh, as not only the visible debt, but the invisible debt that many of them have not been able to pay their rent for a year. Professor Stiglitz, I quote you often in the acclaimed Stiglitz essays of long ago on the little g, that what matters is the growth rate. You're acclaimed at this within your teaching in many different spheres. Great. Can we grow our way out of these debt and deficits? Should we have confidence and rely on the Stiglitz little g to help us get out of this fiscal mess? Uh, yes. I mean, one way of looking at it is just a little bit of history. At the end of World War II, our debt-GDP ratio was 130 percent. And then there was a, a bipartisan consensus led by President Eisenhower, Republican, that we ought to uh, spend heavily on infrastructure, education, R&D. And lo and behold, in a couple of decades, our debt-GDP ratio was down to under 50%. So yes, you can grow uh, out of uh, the high uh, levels of debt that we have. And you know, right now, we're expecting to have very strong growth for this year. Uh, we're actually, uh, most forecasts suggest that at the end of this year, we will be better than we were projected to be before the pandemic. Yep. And Professor, we're talking about the U.S. economy. Of course, we're not talking about other parts of the world like India, like Brazil. You've advocated for the IP waiver that this administration is pushing through at the moment, or at least trying to achieve with partners over at the WTO. Why do you think that's the right approach? Oh, well, we, this is a pandemic. The definition of a pandemic is that it's global. And this particular pandemic is a, a, a kind of uh, 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 danger because it keeps mutating. And we don't want uh, that, those mo- uh, a fertile f- field for those mutations, say, in India. We want uh, this disease to be uh, put under control. 
we're not, nowhere's going to be safe until everywhere is safe. And that's why uh, it's really important to get the vaccine out there as quickly as possible. Now, a major impediment is access to intellectual property. A whole variety of, uh, of uh, 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 access is needed. The principle has been long established. It was established uh, almost two decades ago in the midst of the uh, HIV AIDS epidemic. Uh, the question is how to facilitate it. There's an urgency here. Yep. And that's yep. what the waiver is about. It's not changing the basic framework. There was always the right to compulsory licenses since that HIV AIDS. The question is how to happen, make it happen quickly. And that's what the, the temporary IP waiver is all about. Dr. Fauci has doubts about that. He thinks that this could be an unwarranted, unwelcome distraction, that it could take until the end of 22, early 23 to transfer the technology. And then, Professor, we'd have to talk about expertise as well. The starting position of this debate, everybody agrees with what you said. We need to help the rest of the world. And even the most selfish individual has to acknowledge there is positive externalities associated with that. So it, before we even have this debate, it's done. That's done. We need to help the rest of the world. But Professor, it's how we help them more quickly. Do yeah. you acknowledge that, there are other issues that need to be tackled and that this could become an unwelcome distraction for the other nations that we could, could be doing more to loosen up the strings elsewhere? Well, uh, those sound like the talking points from the drug companies. But the, the, the point is that the drug companies uh, in the developing countries, emerging markets, do have the capacity, uh, a, a barrier to their expanding that capacity is the concern about intellectual property. You know, uh, uh, several companies in South Africa and in India are already producing even the more advanced uh, kinds of uh, vaccines, let alone the, uh, the simpler kinds of vaccines. And it is really intellectual property that is one of the barriers. Now, another barrier that is related to the uh, WTO waiver is allowing it, uh, companies to more easily export uh, their, their products. Under the standard WTO framework, you can get a, a uh, compulsory license that allows you to manufacture for domestic use, but makes it more difficult uh, to export. But in today's world of global supply chains, where even the ingredients in a vaccine may be made in several countries, the barriers to export are a major barrier to expanding the world's so, uh, global supply. So that's why it's imperative to have a temporary waiver of all these restrictions. Professor. There is a question, though, about the economic incentive for companies. And yes, there is this concern by pharmaceutical companies that this removes the economic incentive. However, there are some who argue this could pull them back from innovating, from working harder to come up with new drugs to combat whatever new disease comes our way. What's your response to this, that the economic incentive is that much lower for the pharmaceutical companies? That's absolute nonsense. I mean, first of all, let's, let's be clear. The basic research on which... Uh, these vaccines is based was financed by the governments around the world. Secondly, the uh, expansion of the production and uh, the development of these particular uh, vaccines received enormous government support, not only from the United States, but from other countries. The amounts of money that the drug companies are going to get on these vaccines are going to be, you know, uh, 
enormous returns, uh, uh, well in excess of any normal return. What we're talking about here is whether they'll get, say, 10,000% return on their investments uh, or 1,000% return. Uh, you know, a thousand percent return is enough incentive to make them undertake yeah. that research. I don't worry about that. Well, there's also a question this dovetails into the larger infrastructure spending that Joe Biden has proposed. And just quickly here, are you in the camp of Janet Yellen that taxes should be raised substantially on companies? And if so, why is it not just sufficient to do deficit spending, which does not seem to have had a problem for this country? Well, I... I I uh, do agree that uh, eventually we need to correct our distorted tax system, which uh, in terms of the percentage of GDP that is raised in taxes is insufficient to finance uh, a 21st century economy where you need infrastructure, research, education, a whole host of, of public needs to make a well-functioning economy and society. Uh, we also have a distorted tax system, which is less progressive than other countries, less progressive than, than it should be, particularly given the enormous increase in inequality uh, over the last four decades. Um, so the question is really uh, one of timing. Uh, you know, the basic uh, law of economics is uh, scarcity of resources. Uh, and uh, we've, had, we've not, un we've, we've underutilized our resources. We have some capacity to expand production, but eventually we will reach capacity constraints. And then uh, we will have to decide how our uh, resources get allocated. And that's when the issues of taxes uh, become germane. I won't get into a debate about the efficient allocation of resources with a Nobel laureate, so we'll leave it there. Professor, oh, you've it's good done to catch that up. Before. Professor Stiglitz, <laughs> Columbia Business School University professor. Thank you. Yeah. I've been accused of arrogance in the past, Tom, but I'm not going to take it that far this morning, okay? Uh, we halt here on our economics, finance, and investment and try to figure out what this vaccination program means. We've gone out and found a token grandfather who will actually see his grandchildren for the first time since time began. David Blanchflower joins us, grandfather, Hanover, New Hampshire, uh, this morning. Danny, the kids show up here in the coming days. Absolutely. First time in 15 months, my grandkids are coming today. So, you know, things are starting to get back to normal. And and that's the right. story we're hearing on the economy, of course, but it's, you know, but it's slow progress. I mean, we're seeing fast recovery, but never back to where we were uh, before this all, all awful pandemic hit. I want to go back to the distinction of your book, The Wage Curve, a million years ago. David Blanchflower, very simply here, there's a mystery here to what wage dynamics will do is we bring on millions of service sector lower wage employees. Are you worried about why rising wages and benefits? Um, no, um, I've, been, I've been worried about the lack of rise of wages and benefits over the last 15 years or so. And obviously the big puzzle in the data is that we've actually seen wage growth, which is so strong, it just makes no sense. So when we saw the unemployment rate in the US go from four to 15, we saw wage growth go from three to eight. Uh, and the reason for that was, has been obviously the dropout at the low end of the wage distribution. So for folks like me trying to understand what's happening to wages, it's pretty complicated. I was looking at the same data for the UK today. 
that the Bank of England are going to look at. And it's just as confusing there. There's an election going on in Scotland. And if you look in Scotland today, the unemployment rate in Scotland is lower than it was in March 2020. And so the, the data in the labour market are pretty puzzling. And a lot of it has to do with furloughed workers, bottom of the wage distribution dropping out. Uh, and in a sense, that certainly the argument that I'm going to worry about wages really picking up seems most unlikely to me. Um, people talk about shortages, but there's plenty yeah. of labour out there. There's many firms that haven't recovered and are probably going to close. So I think adjustment's going to be complicated. But the last thing in the world I really care about is that wages are going to explode. They are not. Danny, for regulatory reasons, let's avoid the domestic politics talk over in the UK and focus on the labour market here in the United States sure. if we can. The world sure. has come to you. Every single Payrolls Friday used to come on Bloomberg Radio with Tom and I and we'd talk about the labour market. And you were the class clown. You were the guy that came out and said, look, you're wrong. You're all wrong. And everyone said, oh, here goes Danny. Danny going at it again. The labour market's not tight. Look at where unemployment is. The guy's an idiot. Danny, everyone agrees with you now. So I want to ask you, when you look at the labour market in months and quarters to come, what's the data point you'll actually be looking at? If it's not the unemployment rate, what is it? Well, uh, uh, yeah... Well, I've certainly looked at other measures of labour market slack. So I like the, the employment rate. I like the underemployment rate, but particularly part-time for economic reasons. But I think the adjustment of wages are really the big story. I mean, we, th that shock I just talked about occurred in the US. It's a, it's a big puzzle. And I think if you look back, if you look back at what happened in the US between 2015 and 18 and what the Fed did, in essence, they didn't listen to what I said. They, they said, oh, we're going to raise rates because of full employment coming. Wage growth is about to come. That didn't happen. Uh, Jay Powell has sort of given the mere culpa. But I think what we have to watch is what happens to wage growth. What measures really are there suggesting that the, that the labor market is very tight? And I think the story I've said to you many times over a long period, which other people disagreed with, was that unemployment can surprise on the low side. And basically, we should sit and wait and allow the economy to adjust. And I think that's where we're going. So I'm going to really watch wage growth. I'm going to see how it progresses. But I'm going to watch it come down as people come out of furloughs, they come out of uh, lockdowns that they've been in, and, and, see, and see what recovery comes. But, but I think we just sit and wait and watch. And that's the right strategy of the Fed. I listened to Jay Powell. I thought he was fantastic. Absolutely got it. But if you like, he's just been saying what I've said over the last five years, which people disagree with, but it's essentially turned out to be right. You need to understand what's happened in the labor market, uh, and that's where the adjustment is. But you want to look at multiple indicators. And remember that the employment rate never has got back to where it was in, in 2008, never did. And I think that was a mistake most people made. And lots of commentators on Bloomberg that I spoke to many times just got it wrong. Well, Danny, there's also a question about what policies could materially increase wages going forward. And we hear this increasingly from the Biden administration with the taxes that he's proposed, as well as the support of unions. What policies traditionally in your economic research have effectively raised wages, increased productivity, made a fairer labor market? Golly, a tough. I mean, the first answer is you move towards full employment. But also you give incentives for firms to hire people. I mean, one of the stories about capital and labor is why firms invest in capital is because its relative price is lower. So you try and make the, the labor price lower. Um, I mean, the story about unions, I mean, unions are fine if you can generate rises in productivity. 
So I think help to make <clears throat> workers more productive, help share in uh, profits that are available. And I think one of the stories we have to think about is for a very long time, firms were able to pay higher wages and chose not to. And the question is, why not? They, they paid salaries to executives and so on. So you can encourage firms to hire people. You can give them tax incentives to people. And one of the big stories is you can give wage incentives to people, earned income tax credits, that yeah, but kind of thing. But essentially, you, you start to say it's very important to, to have a shift okay. like from labor to capital, perhaps because the balance moved too far in one direction. But I, I like the idea move towards for employment, uh, okay, allow Danny. wage growth to come, and perhaps the balance between labor and capital has to adjust, because I certainly think the levels of inequality... Okay, you, you, you sound like that's, a professor... That's what the Danny. Biden administration's doing with my friends Janet and Cece. You sound like a professor from Dartmouth. Danny, let's cut to the chase, and we don't have enough time to get into a lecture. You and I are in a classroom up at Hanover, New Hampshire, and we're talking about the unique politics of the Biden Democratic Party. How alone is Joe Biden on wanting to get back to a labor vision from another time? Is it a one-off that evaporates when he's gone, or is there a real new substance here for a new labor vision in centrist America? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, that, I think that's a really good question. I mean, I, I think in, in a sense that I, I always thought the last decade was the decade of the central banker. Maybe what we see now is a new decade coming of the labor economists. Well, why do I mean that? Well, Janet Yellen, labor economist, ex-central banker, but basically, in her, in her acceptance speech, talked about the importance of you know, improving the labor market, improving wages, improving jobs. Cece Rouse, um, chair of the Council of Advisors, another labor economist, members of the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, uh, obviously labor economists. And the recognition is you've got to do something about the labor market, not least those people who've been essentially left behind. You've got to do something about real wages in America, and especially do things about people with high school education and high school dropout, something about those folks. So I think there's a recognition, politically a recognition, but in terms of the labor market, we have to do something about those people who've not, who've not benefited from the American dream. And I think the Biden administration has recognized that. Look at who they have appointed. So my, I, I think Janet's talked a lot about that. So I think the new recognition has to be we, we really messed up what happened in the labor market. And I think Biden's right, and he's moving in, in that direction and looks like quite a lot of public support for it. Danny, the world came to you on the labor market. It's great to catch Thank up. You. Danny Blanchflat, Dartmouth Professor of Economics. Right now in the dynamics of the market, the correlations of the markets, Ash Allenker joins us with Janice. Uh, really just a perfect time to talk to him. Uh, Ash, you know the mathematics of correlation. I would suggest the media is pretty naive about its complexities. Discuss the complexities of the odd correlation now between yield and equity. Yeah, um, that that is, uh, I think you've summed it up, in, in my opinion, that that correlation is the largest risk that we believe investors face. And why I say that is if you think about why these balanced portfolios, say the strategic 50-50 portfolio, the strategic 60-40 portfolio, has done so incredibly well over the last 40 years, has everything to do about correlation. Um, Every single time equities over the last 30 years has suffered a significant loss, bonds have stepped up. 
to help offset that loss. So that correlation in recent times, and 30 years isn't a long period of data, um, that correlation in recent times has been extremely negative. And the correlation I'm talking about is the downside correlation. Now, is it an equilibrium um, or is it too good to be true for bonds A to always hedge or insure against equity risk and B at the same time for bonds to yield tremendous positive carry. Most would say that's too good to be true because we all know insurance costs money. Insurance doesn't come for free. So the past 30 years was an an anomaly. Um, If you look going all the way back to the 1850s, 1860s. Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) that, Yeah, and unfortunately a lot of us don't. (laughs) Well, unfortunately a lot of us, I mean, it's a good point. Um, A lot of us don't remember periods of time where the correlation between bonds and equities was not negative, where yeah. bonds failed to diversify equities, but that was the norm. Right. Um, and, and this is, Paul, why we love having Ash on. I mean, it's so important to get away from the assumed. Exactly. exactly. And then that, that's the complexity when it comes to correlations. And just a, a quick empirical point, which I think you might find fascinating, a lot of listeners might find fascinating, ignoring the period from, ni- from the 2000s to now, the average return to fixed income when equities suffered a monthly return worse than 3%, so worse than minus 3%, was actually minus 1%. So that tail correlation between bonds and equities was actually positive. Ec- bonds did not diversify equity drawdown risk. And that makes perfect sense. If you're collecting yield and gaining risk premium by holding bonds, bonds shouldn't act as a hedge against equities each and every time. Um, and, and so going forward, the resiliency of these balanced portfolios, of these strategic portfolios, has to be questioned, um, which brings us to, to a very difficult period of time for asset owners. What do you do? All right, Ash. So now that the winter skiing season is coming to an end, your portfolio managers are actually coming back to their offices. What are you telling them to do right here and now as we look at markets that are rich by many measures that have had a great run off the bottom? What are you suggesting they think about in their portfolios? Great question. So what we believe is the biggest risk out there is what may unfold in the fixed income markets. Um, We're big fans of using forecasted risks implied by option prices to give us a picture into what may unfold. Um, We use the option market estimates of both future upside volatility and downside volatility as our crystal ball. Um, It's a crystal ball based on the collective wisdom of the markets. And what this crystal ball is telling us um, and it's the most single most interesting observation that we see today, that there's great uh, inflationary pressures, that there's great pressures to increases in interest rates going forward. Um, given that, we are telling clients and potential clients, asset owners, you really need to rethink the role that bonds play in your portfolios. Uh, bonds may no longer a hedge equity risk, so you lose that diversification. And B, bonds, given the environment of low yields, given the environment that the central banks have sucked out risk premium from bonds, given the richness you see in bonds, uh, the carry-on bonds may be non-existent. Um, So one obvious way and direct way to hedge that risk is to lighten up your bond exposure. 
there's ways you can lighten up your bond exposure, but at the same time, keep the risk of your portfolio more at moderate levels. Our research shows one great substitute for holding bonds um, and say a 50-50 portfolio is simply to hold a portfolio which is 100% equities. So you're earning and you're exposed to an asset which is delivering positive risk premium, which is compensating you for the risk that you're bearing. But buy equity put options to reduce that downside risk to a level more consistent with, say, a 50-50 portfolio. And in many ways, you then get get the best of both worlds. You're holding assets where the risk premium exists, i.e. equities, and you're buying protection to limit those losses so the downside risk is more in line with, say, a 60-40. A great alternative today where rates are low, bond risk premium has disappeared, and in many ways, the enemy of inflation is at the gates. So is the enemy of bonds dividend growth? I mean, is what we're talking about here is, you know, take your terminal value out 12 months or 60 months for that matter, and just lock in dividend growth and say thank you. Yeah, um, dividends are a great uh, alternative um, to holding bonds to getting that yield. Um, Anything which is offering nice positive carry, um, in, in a period where you get inflation, you want to have that money sooner rather than later. Um, hence, you're seeing this great rotation, which really started uh, September 2020, this great rotation away from higher duration equities towards lower duration equities. Um, you're seeing these mega cap tech names struggle why the rotation into cyclicals and value names, high dividend yielding names, small cap names are doing much, much better. Um, So there's just simple rules of economics you can follow to help hedge inflation risk in a really simple way. You don't have to go out and buy break-even inflation swaps, which are very difficult for anyone to buy. You can do simple things just like you articulated, Tom. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. Ash, thank you so much. Ash Ellinger there. If you look at the equity market price action, I've been pretty confused by it. We break down the sector price action yesterday, Tom. Top of the pile, energy financials. Bottom of the pile, you had tech in the mix, you had utilities in the mix. If I showed you that equity snapshot, you would think that real yields were inflecting higher, and that's not what's happening. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. You and I have gone back and forth on this, and I think there's a lot of good work out there on it. I would say there's basically a hysteria of gloom out there, John. When I look at Standard & Poor's 500 coming from the trend of 2007, we exactly kissed up two standard deviations, and we've pulled back a little bit to our extended one-and-a-half standard deviations. That's not a correction. It's not a bear market. It's stasis at new high levels. I want to bring in Charles Cantor now of Newberger Berman on this topic. Charles, can we just start there? Your thoughts on what's happening in the bond market and whether you can reconcile it with what's happening in the equity market more recently? Look, I think I think the equity market is is the volatility driving the equity market is is being driven by by really three factors. I think um, one is just overall speculation with retail being twenty percent of the market. I think as more and more folks go back to work. The retail thing will, will decline, and then you have you have inflation front and center, where where as you discussed, you have this debate around is inflation transitory or, or is it more likely permanent? And and for now, you know, with ten-year yields starting with a one-handle, I think the bond market remains reasonably calm that the inflation debate is more transitory. I, I would question that over time. Um, I think I think the the, the bond market is going to move well before the Fed moves. 
And then you have, you know, the, the, the volatility driven by the factors and, and it's small versus large, value versus growth. Um, and on a day-to-day -day basis, it's, it's, those are the factors driving the volatility. I think over time, as we've discussed before, it's just been an awesome um, earning season where we're coming, over 90% of the companies have, have comfortably beaten expectations. And as earnings go, so goes the market. And that continues yeah. to be true this year. Charles, good morning. Tom Keen in New York. You good know, morning, Charles, I, I, I look at where we are off a 2009 log chart on Standard & Poor's 500, and we exactly went up and kissed two standard deviations extended. Okay, the market's a little bit extended now. But when you and Newberger Berman monitor corporate revenues, Corporate earnings, can you suggest we're extended out one year, two years, three years, or are we building an underpinning of cash flow that will sustain this market? What will sustain the market is, is, is earnings driven by, by economic growth. And, and we should all recognize that, that the economy right now is experiencing a demand shock the likes of which we haven't seen since World War II. And it's been driven by, uh, we have three factors in the economy all pedal to the metal at the same time. The consumer, the corporation, and both fiscal and monetary policy are all in it together at the same time. And it's slowly gonna be coordinated globally. And, and, and as those factors continue to play through, you're gonna get more and more earnings. So we started this year at 185, we're close to 200 now on S&P earnings. Next year, after adjusting for higher taxes, you, you probably get another 10% growth. So I think, I think follow the earnings. I think we underwrite businesses, hard to underwrite price volatility day to day, but I think the demand shock's gonna play out for far longer than people expect as, 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 as corporations, consumers, and governments continue to behave in the way they, they behaved over the recent past. Charles, just real quick here, Leon Cooperman yesterday described himself as a fully invested bear. Are you on the same page? You've got to believe in innovation, prosperity, and growth over time. And, and, and so guessing market direction is, is not my true north. I'm trying to be an authentic long-term investor focused on businesses that compound. And what I do know is that when business, if you can find a business that can grow 15% a year for three years, you have 50% more earnings three years from today. That builds in an awful lot of protection on any price volatility. So I tend to be a reasonable optimist. I, I feel emboldened by what transpired last year by innovation and, and governments and companies coming together to solve, to solve something just awful. And, yeah. and, and being optimistic has, has always paid off long-term. And there's nothing about risk assets today that suggests to me um, in total that, that, that they're overvalued. Of course, they're parts of the market where, where speculation is rampant um, and where stories are so great they can't be validated um, nor refuted, but, but focus on businesses with, that are solving real problems that have long-term moats and, and I think investors are gonna be just great. Charles, it's good to see you and it's great to catch up. Charles Cantor there, Newberger Berman, Long Short Fund, Senior Portfolio Manager. Right now in this pharmacy uproar, we get lucky. Jennifer Nuzzo joins us. She's been with us before with Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. And Jennifer, I want to go to that moment in organic chemistry where you realized at Rutgers in environmental organic chemistry. Oh, 
This, this is really, my recurring nightmare. Really, <laughs> and now really, I'm having this exact question. It's really <laughs> hard. I mean, methyl ethyl ketone in organic was easy. And then I opened Morrison and Boyd up and I said, these people are freaking geniuses. Let's go oh, back. Oh, you're bringing to the, it all back. Yeah, you know it all back. <laughs> Let's go to the gross underestimation here of the geniuses actually manufacturing mRNA. They passed Morrison and Boyd, didn't they? They did. They did. And thank goodness for it, because these vaccines are lifesavers, literally. Well, they're lifesavers, literally. But I think there's an underestimation here of those intellectual rights of those drug companies. How do we move from intellectual rights to the crying need to vaccinate India? Yeah, that's exactly the question. I mean, we completely understandable. Um, you know, I think in the case of Moderna, the, the good news is that, you know, the U.S. government um you know, developed the vaccine, uh, the, the IP on that. But it is it is an urgent uh, situation for us to address um, because we do have a crying need. And it's not just in India. I mean, the situation in India is just staggering. Yesterday, they broke yet another record of you know more than 400,000 cases. We know that that's probably a gross underestimate of the number of, of infections that are occurring. Um, nearly 4,000 deaths, in, you know, in a single day. Um, but we're also seeing staggeringly high case uh, counts and case acceleration in a number of other countries um, that are, uh, you know, ill-equipped to, to handle it themselves as well. So we have to figure this out. There is an urgent need for vaccines across the globe, and we just simply don't have enough. We need to make more. So we need to figure out whatever path is possible to making more vaccines as soon as possible. That's the only way we're all going to feel normal about this situation, even as we roll out vaccines here in the U.S. We've got to make more. That's the conclusion, without a doubt. That's the starting position. So, doctor, let's try and ask the right questions. At least that's my job. What do you think is holding back vaccine supply? And do you think IP protection is the biggest obstacle to that? You know, I don't think there's any one big obstacle. I think there's a series of small, lots of small obstacles. Um, you know, it, it appears that IP protection may be one of the issues. I think we really need to have a, a, a detailed analysis of, of what the issues are. We also know that shortages of raw materials are an issue. We, we urgently need a situation where we can track this at the global level to understand where the raw materials are to get countries to stop hoarding whatever um, they have. I think actually more transparency in the global supply chain would help some of those hoarding tendencies. Um, but we need to do this in a concerted way. I mean, this whole like each country go it's on its own in order to vaccinate its own population is really not sufficient in the global pandemic because what we have now is a few countries that have more than enough vaccines for its highest risk population and most countries having not even close to enough uh, to vaccinate even the you know even its healthcare workers uh, who are putting their lives on the line every day so we need to figure out something and just the current uh, amount of vaccine we have is not sufficient to um, address the most pressing needs. Dr. Nuzzo, let's try to strip out the political noise here. How much is the IP issue a distraction based on the length of time that it will take to get through and actually affect the pandemic as we know it right now versus looking at the stockpiles that places like the United States has and deciding how much the U.S. ought to be shipping out while also making sure that its population is covered? Yeah, so we need to do all of it is, is really the thing. I mean, we need to make more, but making more, even, you know, IP issues or not, um, is going to take time. So we have to think about how we're going to use the vaccines that we have. And, you know, I think it is uh, great that we've made so much progress in vaccinating adults here in the U.S. Um, this is bringing down our case numbers, and I expect we will continue to continue to see case declines over the coming months. Israel and the U.K., their, their uh, case numbers are way down, and I expect that we will, we will get there. Um, but the 
the question is, what do we do with the other vaccines? Do, you know, do we keep it for ourselves? Do we start using it in our kids? These are tough questions when we have such urgent needs um, across the world. Maybe now is not the time for us to be vaccinating low-risk populations. Maybe we can share some and then and come back and do that. Uh, we need to figure this out. I don't have all the answers, but yeah. I do think that our failure to answer these questions is what's not ending this pandemic. Jennifer, I got one final question. I just figured out that Morrison and Boyd's sixth edition cost $228, which is enough to start drinking early. Look, look, Jennifer, what's so important here, seriously, how do we move an mRNA vaccine with cold storage over to Mumbai or rural India? To me, that's a fiction. Um, it's actually not. And the reason why okay. I can say that is that we have used vaccines that require um, ultra cold uh, chain uh, conditions um, in uh, low resource settings like um, the Democratic Republic of Congo used a um, a vaccine that requires uh, cold storage, um, you know, to, to address its Ebola problem. So um, it is not it is not uh, not a challenge, but it is one that um, okay. has been worked on before. John, this is a problem. Every time Dr. Nuzo's on, I learn something. Every single time. <laughs> I'll great. try harder next time not to do that. <laughs> Doctor, before you run, I think we've got to tackle yeah. an important domestic issue as well. 2.13 million vaccines per day. That's the average over the last seven days. When are they going to show a little bit of confidence about what vaccinated people can do? Let's do it now. I mean, I'm, you know, I was saying uh, just before I came on, I'm fully immunized as of Friday and I'm, you know, plan to take advantage of that and, you know, go out and do more things than I have done for the last year. I think we have to talk fairly about vaccines, that there are a pathway back to freedom for sure. And reclaiming those freedoms seems to be the big objective. Doctor, it's good to catch up. Jennifer Nusso there, Johns Hopkins Center for House Security, senior scholar. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.